Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Afreen Alam, an entrepreneur who is the founder and CEO of Sanon Therapeutics. That company has a patent on nanoparticle technology called the Carbon Dot, which improves drug delivery to the brain for those who suffer from neurological diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Afreen's company is in the early stages of testing and is raising venture capital money to continue its testing and to expand. Afreen grew up in North Carolina but now lives in Boston. She is a first-generation American and her parents are from India and Pakistan. We started the conversation talking about the carbon dot. Thank you, Asad, for having me join and, and be part of this. Um, so carbon nanoparticle in, in general is, you know, it's kind of the same family of you've ever heard of graphene or buckyballs or any of that, it's um, a derivative of that. So essentially, we use it as a drug delivery tool for neurological diseases. One of the biggest challenge today is that only 2% of drugs available on the market can actually get into the brain. So things like brain tumor, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of these have a very high, um, you know, the disease area is also like the, the burden is high, but there's just not enough medications that can be used to treat them. And unfortunately, that's the biggest kind of drawback to a lot of these disease areas. And what our goal is to use this as a platform to get medications across. There's this thing called the blood brain barrier, which essentially is supposed to keep everything out of the brain when we're normal and healthy. But when a patient has any of these, you know, neurological diseases, we need actually medications to get across. So that's kind of the nanoparticle is a carrier system to carry a drug from point A to point B. Yeah, no, that's really, really fascinating. So what what's happening now? Like for people that have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, like, is it they're just not getting the medications that they need? So there's um, two different categories. One is, uh, I guess, in the example of, you know, oncology as a whole, I can give you everyone kind of has been through the experience of chemotherapy with whether it's a family member or a friend go through it. And the challenge with that is, you know, essentially kills your healthy cells as well as your tumor cells. Yeah. It's very non-specific, non-targeted. So you're essentially pumping in a high dose of toxins, hoping that it gets into the right spot. But along the way, you end up damaging the immune system. The, you know, the entire system is just flooded with this. 
our goal is how do we target just the tumor site or just you know the disease area and so the biggest you know benefit is that you bring down significantly the dosing and the side effects but improve the efficacy of the drug so when you compare it to something like chemo or traditional chemo um, that's you know the differentiator of having it targeted to just one area I, I mean, it sounds too good to be true. I, well, why isn't this being used right now across the across the country? Yeah, we're actually in preclinical testing, so an animal uh, in mice, and we're hoping to actually raise around. We're doing our second round next month, and then planning to do an, an angel round next time. Uh, I guess in, in the spring of 2022, which sounds weird to say 2022 now because it's yeah. been second. Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, that's the plan. And then we hope to kind of get this um, license to other pharmaceutical companies that have things in their pipeline. Oh, so so you are creating the technology and then you'll license it out to exactly. people that are actually creating the drugs. That can, oh, that's a, that's, yeah. that's a really cool approach. And then a lot of the drugs also, um, even if they can get across, the dosage of, or I guess percentage of how much gets across is so extremely low that it's not really you know, therapeutic index isn't really there. So that's the other challenge with um, a lot of these disease models where there's just not enough medication that gets to the, the target site. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I had no clue that that was an issue. That the, the, What do you call the brain barrier? Blood brain barrier. Blood brain barrier. I'm going to have to to research that a little bit more. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your story in that you, uh, I, I have a note here that you had your first DNA sequence published when you were 17, and then you filed a patent at the age of 20. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about this interest in, in science from a young age. So I think um, like every typical Asian kid, it was kind of destined to become or go to medical school. That was kind of what was ingrained in my head. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, when I started, volu- I the first thing I did was I started volunteering at the Duke Cancer Center. And two weeks into it, I thought I was going to quit because it was so challenging to watch patients go through chemotherapy. At the sure. time, I was 18. Um, these are not things that you're thinking about. And plus, it was just like, uh, you know, very depressing to just start. Uh, I would go in on Friday. So it was, you know, starting off your weekends with this reminder of life is short. And, you know, there's all these patients that are going through all these difficulties. And and it's not just the patients themselves, but their family members and kind of everyone that's involved. But I ended up staying there as a volunteer for seven and a half years. Wow. And it was kind of the, you know, to this day kind of keeps me going and motivates me to find a better alternative for something like chemotherapy, where I guess the progress has been substantial from when we first started. But I mean, I feel like there's still a long way to go. And I at the same time also wanted to do uh, a study abroad. So I was, you know, like, I guess every pre-med student, I double majored in microbiology biochemistry. And I wanted to do something that kind of stood out in terms of the research side. And my dad, who's from India, put three conditions. He said it had to be in India because I hadn't been since I was four. And <laughs> secondly, it had to be at one of the IITs, which are kind of like the elite um, engineering schools in India. And I think secretly he was hoping I wouldn't get in. I just dropped the idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the third condition he put was your mom's going to move with you for six months. And oh, wow. Luckily, I got in. I was working with the head of the chemistry department. And during this time, we really developed this nanoparticle that can be used for target drug delivery. And, you know, the goal was kind of looking at what's currently in the market, what are their disadvantages and what are their weaknesses? How can we overcome them and create a solution that is non-toxic, is water-soluble, is more like, you know, bio-friendly? 
but the key was making something that was out of carbon, which our bodies naturally have. So the immune system's not reacting to it or fighting back. And that's exactly what we did. It kind of started off um, as a project for all of oncology in, in general, but then had to focus on a area that had a high NMET need. And that was anything neurological because of the challenge of medications getting across. When I came back from India and at the time, I was just going to write my thesis and have another checkbox done for med school and kind of move on. But my dad had a background in organic chemistry and my um, dad's mom actually passed away from cancer. And so, you know, that was something that he firsthand, we got to experience kind of living with her and seeing all the side effects. But it was something that always motivated him to find, um, kind of focus on the scientific side. And he was like, you know, this is pretty novel. No one's done this before. Why don't you file for a patent? And the time I was 20, I knew what a patent was. I had no idea how to go through the process. Sure. He was the one who really helped me kind of find the right IP attorney. Uh, he funded the entire, you know, the, the legal process for that, which is, you know, it could take several years before the back and forth and finally getting the patent issued a few years later. But in the meantime, I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, semester before graduating, I was like, I love the field of medicine, but I felt like I can make a bigger impact going the research route. So I went over to my parents and I said, not going to med school, which uh, they didn't at first take, well, you know, take very well, but they were very supportive and they were like, well, what are you going to do if you're not going to do med school? And at that time I was like, I have no idea. I have to figure that out. But um, I decided to go back to business school and kind of merge the technical side and the business side together. And at the same time, um, you know, pat the first patent was issued. So it's like, now how do I you know, take this to market or how do I take this forward? And that's kind of the journey of, you know, going from a very purely scientific yeah. field to adding on a business side to it and then forming the company. But that's how the company essentially got started. And um, we started to kind of grow from there. Did your mom go with you to grad school as well? No. She <laughs> <laughs> I actually lived in North Carolina at the time. So the, the school was about 20. I went to Duke, which was like 20 right. from home. I know, I'm just kidding around. I'm just, yeah. just joking around. Um, it, it seems like your dad had a, a huge influence on on your career, though. Um, how important has he been to, to where you are now? I, I think, you know, part of that was we grew up in a family of just girls and we didn't have any brothers. So he, you know, would always encourage us that we can, you know, take our own paths. And, you know, just being a girl doesn't mean that we can't achieve anything that we put our hearts to. And it was constantly like, you know, be your own boss or come up with your own solution and do something that, you know, part of the, the, the I guess, the religious aspect of making a difference and doing something that will be for the betterment of society or you know, kind of leaving behind some sort of legacy, which was, um, you know, just as important as you know, building a career or I feel like in medicine, it's it's something that gives you the self-satisfaction of helping others and, you know, doing something good. Whereas in the research side, it's, you know, exactly the same versus you can potentially impact hundreds and thousands of patients at once rather than one individual patient at a time. Yeah, sure. But to this day, he's, you know, been our biggest supporter and helped kind of the funding of the, the company. He was truly our angel investor when he first got started. And we got to a point where he was just like, okay, I've used up my retirement funds. Now you got to go out <laughs> and raise money somewhere else. 
<laughs> it's always hard to to get convinced the angels and and the friends and family around. I, I'm interested to know about your your journey as a woman as a Muslim fundraising and in the business world so far. What how is how has that been? And and in in biotech, this would be considered biotech. Yeah, it says biotech, yeah. and you know it's definitely women are the minority. And then on top of that, being a sub minority within that group, yeah, like you're not, uh, you know, you don't fit. I guess the typical landscape of even when you attend conferences. Um, I remember one conference I attended, there was probably about 500 white males and maybe a handful of five or six females in the entire room. And the moment I got up on stage, it was like as if these walls went up because people just started glazing over. And, you know, there's a few hurdles that you have to cross because I, I didn't end up getting a PhD. I went the MBA route. And so they're automatically, that's like the first hurdle. Secondly, I'm a female, then I'm a minority on top of that. And just kind of the way, you know, I dress, I, I have a headscarf. So they look at me and they're like, oh, this you know, person doesn't really fit in. And, you know, initially that was something that would, I guess, intimidate me or make me not want to get up on stage and, and talk. But the moment that you start explaining the technology and kind of show that you truly understand kind of the value proposition this has, people are more willing to listen and kind of like, oh yeah, you know, that there is a huge market need for this. Like maybe we should listen to what this company has to offer. And that's kind of how you end up growing and kind of getting more um, confident about just what you, you know, talk about. And I think there's another conference that I remember, I think there was 10 females and we had a, um, a bathroom break and the women joke, like, this is the first time we've ever had to wait in line because it's always the men who have to wait in line because <laughs> there's always so many of them. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's getting, you know, getting better, but very slowly. But the biggest challenge is the financing piece where yeah. there's such a huge gap between just being a, an entrepreneur that's a male versus a female and raising money. And I think the VC rate is like 3% of venture money goes to female entrepreneurs versus the rest of the money goes to males. And it's just, um, you know, that much harder to kind of raise and kind of prove your point. Um, and luckily, I think with the friends and family, we were able to do it through people that have been kind of tracking and watching the progress of the company itself that you know, a lot of them reached out to me and said, hey, whenever you do open up a round, let us know first, because we'd like to be in that first round. And I think that was very encouraging, but also show that people can, you know, genuinely invest in the technology itself rather than just looking at who's running the company or, you know, if, if it if it is a female, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, sure. You mentioned at one point I was reading that uh, um, at one of these conferences, uh, they ended up taking a picture of you when you were on stage and using it all in all their marketing to prove that that, that it was diverse. Is that right? Well, and and I think um, for the next year, you know, that picture got circulated through all their newsletters and all their because it's like I was um, I was the only female presenting at that. There was probably six or seven males sitting at the stage, and it was one of those like lightning round um, pitches. And all of the the other males sitting behind me are like in you know black suits and just like looked very, like very serious. And I get up there with a colorful scarf and I'm just like very, you know, I, I stood out, but I also was very different from the typical demographic of who's presenting at these conferences, but they were like, oh, look, we're diverse and we're going to use this in our marketing. How, how does that make you feel? Uh, initially, I kind of laughed at it because it was like, oh, well, I was the only 
um, you know, non-white person there or the not, you know, one of the minority females there. But I think it's a great way to kind of showcase that, you know, kind of for the next generation that, you know, you can put your mind to anything and achieve whatever you, you know, set your goals and your heart to. But it's more of, you know, just because I wear a headscarf, it shouldn't intimidate people from, you know, standing up and presenting at conferences or kind of going after your goals. But I think it's, you know, part of it's just hopefully a motivating factor. And, and I think, you know, it makes me happy and proud to see something like that and, and hopefully um, make other people kind of stand up and, and do it themselves as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Afreen shares a story of being profiled while she was volunteering in a hospital as a teenager. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Afreen Alam, the CEO and founder of Sanon Therapeutics, which has created a new way to deliver drugs across the blood-brain barrier. I asked her to share her challenges as a founder. I think the first part is kind of building a team um, that has the same core values and same mission as, you know, what you're trying to develop. And I think, you know, starting at a startup level where the foundation needs to be so strong that when you bring on future employees, everyone kind of has those core values that are aligned with each other. So that's one of the, the biggest things. But secondly, is just the fundraising piece where being younger, being female, you know, it does put up a lot more hurdles to raise money. And you know, we don't have a network of yeah, high net worth individuals that we can just call up and say, hey, we're doing a round. Um, you know, do you have 50000 to put in? But it's it's not just, you know, the investment side, but also the, um, you know, foundations where a lot of them, you can submit the best application possible. But if you don't know someone within that foundation, your application will never get looked at. Yeah. And it's like small things like this, where having a network, and I feel like, yeah, as Muslims, like well, I wish we had a better way to kind of help each other and get the you know the word out. But uh, you see it in our kind of in, in the Jewish communities where it's just a lot more you know kind of built into their like kind of helping each other grow up and helping each other you know get investments and you know, get to the next stage. But I feel like our our Muslim community unfortunately lacks some of that, and I think it's starting to get better where. You know, there are people that you know, even in my first round, like I had a lot of essentially friends that were part of the same community that genuinely just wanted to help see the company succeed. And they were like, you know, whatever we can do to help, we'll, we'll be there. And I think just hearing that is just in itself gives you so much relief, but also just um, like happiness because it's like, you know, this is what we as a community need to kind of work towards. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that, and I, I think that, like you said, I think we are getting there, and I think there are we're moving certainly in that direction. Even you know, I, my background is also in investing and and startups and all that kind of stuff. But I've, even in my ten years of doing that, I've seen more and more uh, Muslims become active in in angel investing, and yeah. and I think as we see our community grow and mature beyond the doctors and engineers, we'll see a lot more. Hopefully, yeah. you know, angel investors and, and VCs emerge uh, and, and support uh, people like you. So no, I, I think the future is optimistic. And I'm hoping that it will be developed in time for your Series A round, whenever that, that may be. <laughs> um, I want to transition a bit. Can you tell me about your upbringing? You mentioned a little bit about your, your dad, but what was it like to be um, uh, a Muslim woman in uh, North Carolina growing up? In the, I'm guessing, late 80s, early 90s was when you came of age? 
Yeah, so I was actually born in Canada. Um, oh. We moved to North Carolina when I was I think, 11 or 12. But I mean, North Carolina is a very, I mean, I guess luckily we lived in the RTP bubble, which, you know, the education level is very high and the, you know, diversity is, is better than kind of in the rural or the suburb areas of North Carolina. It's where the main colleges are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and so the one advantage was, you know, what it didn't initially feel as intimidating to kind of be um, a minority kind of growing up there. But occasionally there, you know, there's always times where I, I went to NC State for undergrad and it was agriculture school. And a lot of students that would come there would be, um, since they had a heavy focus on agriculture, um, a lot of farmers' kids and, you know, people that had never experienced or never seen a Muslim in their life other than Fox News. And it was just a very different, you know, feeling. One, I think it was just kind of the the lack of um, experience, but also lack of exposure that people just kind of assumed and put you in this certain category and, and bucket of, you know, we had this this preacher that would come to the brickyard and, you know, preach all sorts of stuff like, oh, you women, you belong in the kitchen and like all sorts of like stuff. To, like to that. you or to all women? To, to all women, but also he would like specifically sit, you know, make comments about there was, you know, a big Muslim community at, at the school that I went to. But if any of us walked past, he'd, you know, make fun of our headscarves or say something. Wow. But it was just, you know, free speech. You could say whatever you want and <laughs> get away with it. But it's just, you kind of end up getting used to it, which is the sad part because, you know, this is something that you shouldn't have to. In the very similar experience I went to when I did start volunteering at the cancer center, I mean, people travel from all over the country to come to Duke for treatment. And a lot of times, you know, they don't have family members that travel with them. So my job was more to kind of just be there as a patient advocate or patient support system. And it could be to talk if they want to talk about their diagnosis, you know, sure. If they want to talk about the weather or any, you know, hobbies, whatever they want to talk about, I'm just there to be a support person. And I remember one time I walked in and it was an older white lady who was uh, sitting there like in her bed and she seemed very hesitant to let me in. And she was like, well, what can I help you with? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm here to help you. And like, if there's anything you'd like to talk about or you know, how can I make you feel better today? And we just started to, you know, start talking and start opening up. And she was like, so um, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm a pre-med student and I'm double majoring in microbiology and biochemistry. And the first thing that comes to her mind was, I mean, it's like embarrassing to say it on, on a podcast, but it's just like, she was like, well, what are you going to do with that? Make bombs? And oh, wow. it was just like, you know, the reality of that, I, I think my first instinct was to laugh because I, I didn't realize she was being serious. Sure. Yeah. But after I, I laughed, I was like, oh, wait, she wasn't joking. Like that was, she really meant that. And, you know, every week I kept going back and she became, um, you know, more open and more, you know, wanting to share things. And in the end, she was like, I've never met one of you guys and you're, you're normal. You're, you're just like us. And I was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's the reality of a lot of our like Muslim community. We're just like everyone else. And we're just, you know, normal citizens doing, uh, you know, trying to do good and trying to survive and, and trying to get a career and you know, education and whatnot. But it's sad to see that I think because people have been so sheltered or haven't gotten to you know see that exposure, they just automatically assume things and 
which are most likely wrong. <laughs> yeah. It, you must have been a teenager when this happened? I think I was 18, 19. Yeah. 18, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, well, how do you process something like that at that age? And, and would you react differently to something like that now? I mean, I guess now I probably wouldn't have laughed as my first instinct because sure, yeah. I understand that people, um, you know, have these you know, preconceived notions, but it's just, you know, I genuinely, I kind of felt bad for the lady. And I was like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sad that she's never got to meet people that are from different minority groups or, you know, got into kind of get to know us or get to know who we are as people rather than what she sees on TV. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just talking to you, I can sense you have a very warm personality and, and very engaging. And so I can imagine that you won her over pretty quickly. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, by the end of that conversation, I was there for an hour. And you know, by the end of it, she was already opening up and she was like, oh, I'll see you next week. And it's like, okay. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's a great ending to that story for sure. Um, uh, one question for you, uh, and I don't know if it's it would the answer would be the same, but advice for female entrepreneurs and or advice and or advice for Muslim entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think a lot of times people will try to bring you down and say that you know you don't have it in you, whether it's the credential piece or just the experience or whatnot. But uh, you know, everyone has to start somewhere, and you kind of have to build that foundation yourself. And I think you know, don't don't self doubt yourself or don't uh, you know. I feel like a lot of times we end up, especially as females, you know, living in that imposter syndrome of, you know, we aren't good enough or we we can't make it. But, you know, when they say fake it till you make it, it kind of is true. Like you have to just keep pushing through and kind of, um, you know, get to a point where the credibility kind of just speaks for itself, where, you know, you've built a network or you've built the accolades of like, okay, I've, you know, got into this stage because of all this, you know, recognition. Um, and that kind of ends up feeding in itself where even to this day, I, I think I, I constantly kind of go through that because it's like, oh, well, maybe, I, you know, I, I'll hear people say like, oh, well, maybe you don't have the right team or you don't have the right yeah, skill set yourself. But I think at the end of the day, if you know, if you believe in the technology, if you believe in, you know, what you're starting, there has to be that passion. And that passion is what really keeps you going. Because if you don't truly believe in it yourself, it's very difficult to wake up the next day and kind of keep going forward. Yeah, no, no doubt. And very inspirational. Uh, I wonder who do you look for look towards uh, for inspiration? Uh, this may seem um, <laughs> like, I think the biggest person for me is actually my my parents and my dad and um you know particular where he went through you know he came he moved from india and you know kind of built his life from scratch and and i think you know even through all these hardships and kind of going through you know starting from rock bottom and kind of building his way up it was just like the self the sense of commitment that i've seen from you know from his side but also from my mom where they were always working as a team, like no matter what hardships they went through, you know, they were there to support each other. They were there to kind of get through the hard times. And you know, we all go through those. And I think that's just part of life and part of reality. And, um, you know, seeing them kind of bring us up together and kind of have that shared responsibility and really motivating us and helping us, you know, achieve our goals and, you know, making sure that we don't give up was key where, a lot of times I feel very lucky to have parents that believed in us and you know, pushed us through. But I think, you know, a lot of us like come from my um, immigrant uh, parents where 
they did have to struggle a lot and had to kind of give up a lot and make a lot of sacrifices. So I think, you know, for for many of us, our mentors and our advisors and people we look up to are our parents. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, uh, Afreen, thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. Look forward to the the future of your company and and, uh, hope you can raise a ton of money and make a big difference in the world. For sure. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. My conversation with Afreen was recorded in July of 2021. We'll have links to her company and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you have a second, we'd love for you to review us on Apple Podcasts. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced by Mark Inato, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can find us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.